0: I am joined by Kirill Asater, founder and CEO of Centerfin. Kirill, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's great to have you here, Kirill. You know, a lot of the folks who I interview, they think the dollar is going to implode, they think it's going to explode, the, you know, interest rates are going to the moon or they're going negative. Uh they have a firm, you know, conviction that's sort of based on it. But you are actually managing real money. Uh you're you're an investment advisor and you know, you're what, so tell us a little bit about Centerfin and what role Macro plays into that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a great question. And Macro is, is, you know, ever so more important today than, than it has been in recent past. So um, about Centerfin. So we, we started Centerfin about two years ago and went live with it about um, at the beginning of this year. Um, we manage money on behalf of individuals. We are a registered investment advisor. Um, we manage money with a long-term view. But we take into effect um, a global, uh, a kind of a global macro view in helping us with our asset allocation. And so we're not an automated advisor. We're not a passive, um, you know, investing platform. We are really utilizing decades of experience in the hedge fund industry and the relationships that that, that experience has, has brought to the team to help inform, you know, how to position clients in this very unprecedented market environment. And so, um, you know, as a, as a great example of uh, how, this, uh, how this kind of um, uh, uh, reflected itself recently, at the end of last year, as you recall, uh, everybody on the sell side and the Federal Reserve was talking about how the inflation that we were witnessing in 2021 was likely to be transitory. Um, we had formed a view and kind of talking to a lot of our network that, you know, there's a decent probability that inflation was going to be. Not transitory and was going to stick around a little bit longer and be you know uh, more of a problem than what was being um, spoken about at the time. And so what we sat down um, to think about is you know what, are the, what is the obvious thing to do for clients uh, if you think inflation is going to be uh, more of an issue than what is being priced in the markets right now. And one of the most obvious things to do is really just you know uh, limit exposure to any traditional fixed income assets because if you think about um, the way that inflation works, um, real interest rates on fixed income assets become negative, um, and hence they're, you know, uneconomic to hold. And hence, you know, it's it's not it's not a good place to be. And so, you know, what we've seen in the first quarter and and continue it throughout 2022, as the narrative around inflation and the and the data has been uh obviously more than transitory, we've seen fixed income assets fall in price as yields have gone up. And um, and that's a that's a good example of how we use our macro views. So it wouldn't be offensively, so to speak. It would be more de- defensively.
0: Yeah, That's a great example, Kirill. And when you make a sale, how do you decide about what to do with that cash? Because an individual investor who is, you know, uh, feast or famine by their own, uh, dint by their own investment choices. If they want to sell the S and P 500, cause they get scared. If the S and P crashes, they feel good. They feel smart. If it doesn't, and they lose out on a rally, you know, they have no one to blame but themselves. But if you do that, Kirill, a client can say, Hey, Kirill, you lost, you, you know, the S and P 500 went up 20% and we were in cash. So what happened? So how do you, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. So, so we, it's, it's actually very relevant to the conversation we're having, you know, exactly today uh, in kind of mid 2022, because we're kind of sitting in a place where it's not clear that the market has clearly, you know, it's not clear that the market has found a bottom at this point. Um, But we are also managing money on a 10, 20 and 30 year time horizon. Right. And so that's the balance of trying to figure out, you know, how do you position clients to mitigate that drawdown? Uh, with maintain, you know, while maintaining that long-term mindset, and so what we do is we kind of shift things around in the portfolio. And so, you know, at the end of last year, to your question about what do you do with the cash once you um, sell the fixed income exposure, well, we came into this year with a heavy um uh, allocation to commodities, you know, uh, precious and base metals, um you know, some natural resources, although we were we were clearly underweight energy and and we kind of fixed that in, during the first quarter. Um but um but that's that's how that's how we approached it because we felt like what is the beneficiary of inflation? It's obviously commodities is the is is the obvious place to be. Hmm.
0: And yeah, you know, what have you made of the huge run up in commodities and to what degree do you think it might be halted, given that we've you know, had some very jittery price action over over the past month, particularly in things like copper, iron, and natural gas?
1: Yeah, it, it's a great it's a great point, and this is where I think the balance of the kind of short term market moves and the longer term uh, perspective comes in. So, um, you know, commodities did behave as expected, kind of in the first quarter, but as you know, everything kind of rolled in the second quarter. Everything kind of rolled over as we started to see. Recession and growth fears, and so um, you know all of the commodities have now come down because uh, you know the market's more focused on a uh, potential recession hitting us than it is on inflation, right? And and this was you know we were kind of witnessing this throughout the second quarter um, and and discussing it internally. And the underlying fundamentals for commodities, right? So copper, um, you know, g- gold not so much, but you know, say copper a- as an example. Um, there is a fundamental supply-demand imbalance. Given that we are moving globally into this, you know, electric vehicle and electricity as as a source of energy for, for vehicles, um, you need uh, a lot of these input commodities to make that happen. And so, long term, there's a a very bullish fundamental picture for commodities, almost all commodities at this point. Um, and so, our view has been, you know, while you know they've rolled over. Uh, we've maintained our um, our existing exposure uh, at this point anyway. Um, And uh, and we think long term, it's, you know, fundamentally, the picture is very bullish for commodities.
0: And and let's say a client says, I really want to be allocated towards commodities. Are you then investing in sort of hedge funds that buy commodity stocks? Are you buying commodity stocks yourself? Are you owning ETFs that have futures positions? Sort of how what give us the range of sort of how you do commodity investing?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So it's it's a mix of a mix of all the above, with the exception of at least yet uh, hedge funds today. Um, you know, so right now we express our views via ETFs that either trade the futures as a physical, um, as well as uh, commodity equities. Right, commodity equities actually. Um, you know, our CIO and I uh, we discussed this on a regular basis. Um, there is some there is there's actually some benefit to owning the commodity equities if you're bullish on the underlying commodity. Um, and so we we have a mix of mix of the two currently. Right. And so I, I know we were speaking earlier. You have a
0: certain view. Your chief investment officer has a different view. To what degree do those views get implemented in client portfolios? You know, is it in the basis points of we're going to up the copper allocation from 76 basis points to 77 basis points? Because Kirill is feeling pretty bullish on
1: uh, the long term electric vehicle story. Or is it uh, is it more significant than that? No. Yeah, it's 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 a it's great to have kind of, you know, a healthy debate. Um, You know, we don't um, again, given our experience, we've been our CIO has spent a lot of time in the hedge fund industry myself as well um you know having kind of different biases and i do tend to have a more bearish overall bias uh while our cio i think has a a a bullish overall bias i think that's very very healthy uh because it 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 helps us balance uh the exposure in client portfolios and it is on the margin right it's not it's going to lead us not to make any big bold calls because that's not what we're that's not what clients are are paying us for, right? We are not a hedge fund. We're really trying to manage their money on a very long-term time horizon. But we do think it's very important to be tactical in, in this market environment. And so this this internal debate kind of helps shape how we tweak things along the way. And we we have been doing that uh, for the last year or so and we'll continue to do that. We're actually we were just on a call with a, a very well-regarded technical strategist um, just before this call. Kind of discussing kind of more short to medium term uh, technical views uh, to help us inform you know some of the things we've been talking about doing um, for for client portfolios. Mm, right. So
0: you said you have a bearish bias. How are you thinking about it now in terms of the Fed, in terms of inflation, as well as other macro drivers of you know risk assets, namely let's say you know the S and P five hundred.
1: Yeah. So my personal uh, my personal uh, bias, I think, has always been, you know, somewhat of a a glass half empty type person. And so uh, I'm generally I generally and I know this about myself. I generally do tend to get caught up in, you know, uh, what's referred to as uh, as macro bear porn. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it's you know, you you read about some of these stories and, and, and they make sense. And um, and, and they convince you that the world's going to come to an end and, and, you know, you should just go to cash and, you know, hide everything under your mattress and whatnot. Um, but, you know, being cognizant of that bias is important. Um, and so my, my, bi- my bias to being bearish and, and, and the current thinking is largely due to the fact that, you know, in, in the kind of medium term, I think we've seen a, uh, a pullback from what was a very, um, a Monetary environment, liquidity-driven market move um, that predated COVID, but then got exacerbated by COVID. Right? Um, I wrote this, I wrote about this in our in our quarterly letter. You know, if you take a step back, post financial crisis, you know we've been in this loose monetary environment for for a very long amount of time, where inflation has been under control. And so the Federal Reserve kind of every time stocks pulled back or there was weakness in the in the economy, you know, they, they just basically, you know, they just basically did more of what they were doing before, which was providing, um, uh, you know, easing, easing into the into the into the monetary in, in their monetary policy. And so um, but I do but that all changed uh, at the beginning of this year. Right. So inflation you know, uh, proved to be as we were talking about before, less than transitory. The Federal Reserve has a dual mandate, and that's maximum employment and price stability. The maximum employment mandate, um, based on last Friday's uh, jobs number, uh, is 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 doing just fine. But that price stability mandate is out of control, and so um, lots of folks are talking about how. The Federal Reserve is going to pause because there is a recession coming. Uh, but until they see it in the jobs numbers, um, it's it's hard to see how they pause because inflation um, is high and and maybe it's peaking. But on a on a, a absolute uh, pr- uh, an absolute level, inflation remains too high, and I think the Fed is going to continue to hike uh, to bring that down. There was an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal uh, by somebody who you know seems to be. Uh, you know uh, you know somebody that the Fed uses to kind of get their views out he was the one who broke the the scoop that the June hike might be 75 bips instead of 50 bips which was what was priced in you know the week before um, their meeting and he wrote about how the Fed is and Jay Powell is hyper focused on not repeating the uh mistakes of the early nineteen seventies where the Federal Reserve under Arthur Burns, they hiked and then there was a recession a recession fear, so they eased and inflation, you know, continued to be a problem until Volcker came around and really uh got inflation under control.
0: Yeah. So Kirill, over the past decade, really 14 years, where we've had ultra accommodative monetary policy anytime the S&P 500 you know dipped down something like 20% the fed was the first at the scene uh, with the, with the bandages with with the ambulance um, and that was called you know the the fed put And so shrewd investment advisors, perhaps if this is backward looking, of course, but anytime the S&P 500 was down 20%, they would back up the truck to buy as much as they possibly could for their clients. Well, we are over 20% down the S&P 500 now, and it's quite clear that the ambulance is not coming. Uh, So my question for you is... At what point do you think the ambulance the Fed put is coming? Uh, I guess you could you, you know you, you instead of saying on the S and P 500 a rough level you could say a high yield credit spread or some other uh, in you know level of the dollar or any any other macro indicator you want. What is going to be the siren song that like brings the the ambulance? and also and you know would would make you want to back up the truck for your clients and sort of have you draw your line in the sand because my sense now is you you have not drawn your line in the sand now you're open to more <laughs> declines that's my sense
1: yeah yeah I, I i think so and i mean you know the concern is is that you know, the more we talk to people in the know, the more that seems to be consensus, which is always kind of concerning. But um, like somebody just recently uh, that I was talking to said, you can't just be bullish because everybody's bearish, mm-hmm. um, and which is true, because I do think we need to adjust for a new monetary regime. And to your point about the Fed, the Fed is focused on inflation. They're no longer focused on, uh, you know, again, the jobs, the jo- the jobs picture remains Pretty strong, and so they can't. Th- that part of their mandate is fine, and inflation is not fine. And so I think that um, we need to mentally adjust uh, away from this buy the dip mentality, um, and really think through, uh, you know, the second and third order effects of what of what this Fed policy means. And I think where we'll see it, and where the you know the potential for the Fed to pause is not going to be with the S and P five hundred at a certain level. It's going to be with something breaking in the credit markets, and so. Uh, once you see once you see cracks in the credit markets, which you've seen spreads blow out just recently, just in the last quarter, but they're not outrageous at this point. Um, it, it's not. There's no. There's nothing broken right now, right? I mean, there's there's not a lot of you know capital markets activity because you know companies are not expecting to to be financed in this in this market environment, but nothing seems to have been broken yet. I think. You know, once you see some cracks in in the credit uh, markets, that's probably where the Fed starts to get focused on whether or not they're 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 too tight uh, and maybe pausing or, or, or going the other way.
0: Interesting. So it'd be in the, it would be in the credit markets, not the equity markets that would, would cause a Powell put a Fed put. Kirill, what is your view on how much Fed policy actually works? Like how sensitive do you think GDP and inflation actually is? To the shrinking of the balance sheet or the raising of of interest rates? Uh, And also, is it sort of a real effect or is it kind of a narrative effect?
1: That's a great question. Um, I don't think I have a a super smart answer, except that, you know, if you look at history as a guide, uh, you you did see, um, you know, the, the effect of monetary policy flow through to the real economy, right? And so, um, you know, the Federal Reserve at the end of the global financial crisis, you know, they did things that were unprecedented at the time, you know, quantitative easing, um, which, you know, is, is now something that we've come to accept. If you recall, that, that is something that was supposed to be temporary. It was supposed to be a temporary measure. Uh, it became, you know, it just became something that was, you know, common for, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. Um, and I think that that has led to um, asset prices being higher. Um, and I think the economy is kind of just kind of you know trounced along the whole time. Um, as long as the economy has not been in a recession and the, the jobs picture has been healthy, the Fed has been you know very happy with their policy. But I think again, not to beat a dead horse, but I think we're living in a different environment where um, we um, you know we do have an inflation uh, problem that we haven't seen since the nineteen seventies, um, and the Fed has to act differently. And I do think. Yes, it does have an effect of slowing down the economy because it's, you know whenever you tighten monetary conditions, um, it's going to it's going to go it's going to feed through to the real economy and slow down the economy. And we're we're already seeing some of this, right? Like you have seen economic data, except for the jobs number, um, get fairly weak in the in the latter part of the second quarter. Um, so I do think that there is a there is a correlation to Fed policy and and the real economy. Um, but I I'm, I worry about you know. The Fed, the Fed is not worried about, I think, stock prices, which is what I think people came to believe in the in the prior QE period. If anything, I would say again, at a very high level, I think that that has um, grown the inequality gap, right? Because you know, only the top whatever it is ten percent of households, at least in the U.S., own uh, financial assets like stocks and real estate, and um, and and that policy has helped those assets uh, grow in value. Uh, most of the population actually does not own financial assets, right? And so, um, I don't think that the Fed is going to be, you know, concerned about stock prices. But I do think it does have an effect on the on the real economy, and they need to be cognizant of that. Carol, s- switching
0: gears a little bit, I know you said that you were sort of trading stocks, trading .dot com stocks uh, in your in your college dorm room. Could you? Would you think that the past two years of speculative fervor, if I can call that, with sort of all the fresh new IPOs, the SPACs, the, all the companies that have no, no profit, no revenue, and they're trading at $10 billion, is that not comparable to the dot-com bubble? Is it comparable? Is it even worse? Uh, you know, And also, what was it like sort of launching your product as that was crashing? <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, it's a great question. So I think no no as as they say, it's a little overused, but no two periods are exactly the same, right? But there's there's similarities. And I do think there's a lot of similarities between what happened kind of post COVID and a, you know, explosion of retail trading with uh, you know, platforms like Robinhood um, you know, providing an easy way for for, for more entrance into the market. To when I was in college and e trade was a new thing back then where you know, I can open up an account online. You know, I can trade for, you know, relatively cheap, relative to, to you know, history at that point um and you had all these new dot-com stocks that were promising to change the world um that were trading at crazy uh valuation multiples you know so so at that point you know you know this last two years you had you know um electric vehicle stocks and you know other high growth tech companies that were part of the quote unquote bubble in in the late 90s early 2000s you had um i remember internet accelerators right so these were these were companies that um that basically um, they, uh, they had all these like internet, um, uh, companies under their, under their belt that they incubated, uh, and they traded at crazy, crazy valuation multiples and they all crashed. And, and most of them actually, I think all of them went away. Um, so I think there's a lot of parallels to, to that. Um, and I think that we, we saw this clearly, you know, when, you know, you saw this, um, you know you saw the meme stocks and stuff back in the in the 90s it was it wasn't you know on reddit it was on you know the the message boards on yahoo finance right like i mean i was on those message boards it's very similar so there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of you know history rhymes as they say uh to to what happened back in the late 90s um and i think you know it's healthy and unhealthy at the same time it's healthy in that it helps teach people a lesson like i learned a very hard lesson it, it's helped inform my view of the, over the last couple of decades as i've been working professionally in finance um and and hopefully it it, it teaches people's you know the, the younger generation today that's entering the stock market um the same lessons because i think they're valuable um it's obviously Sorry, Kiro, what, what was that lesson that you learned um that there's no free lunch. Uh, that's kind of the basic lesson, right? Like there is no get rich quick scheme, right? The the you know, the to the moon, you know, uh memes uh are temporary. They're just it it's just it just doesn't happen, right? Like um this um this this whole concept. The one of the things I really I really respect Robinhood for everything they've done and and what they've built and having started a company, it's you know, it's very difficult. But this this concept of you know trade stocks for free is just misleading right it's there is no free lunch <laughs> there is nothing free right and we learned this with facebook you know a while ago right you know if it's free you know you're the product um and and so i think that that's an important lesson because i, I think you know most people just thought stocks go from you know up and to the right uh forever uh and that's just not the case
0: definitely wise advice there is no free lunch yeah, Robinhood I think really revolutionized the free trading, and to the extent that you know I'm on a different brokerage platform, but I have free trading. I think that's because everyone just wanted to catch up and, and compete with with Robinhood. Although I will say, when I try and buy a Canadian stock or a European or a, a Chinese stock, and I have to pay that 4.95 or or you know so, something like that, I am a lot more uh, uh, um, discriminating. You know, I I, I do I'm I pay a lot more attention.
1: Absolutely. No, I mean look. I i do think they did a great job in kind of you know uh, putting pressure on the brokerage industry there's a ton of fat in you know uh, anything you know anything retail oriented and on Wall street that's kind of one of the one of the reasons we started centerfin also uh and so um you know kudos to them for 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 you know including this whole new part of the um the world into into financial markets but um i do think there's uh you know there's a balance that needs to be that, that needs to be had there
0: yeah, and telling about Centerfins ability to access funds the that would norm alternative let's call them that normally are not accessible to to retail investors. Why was that important? And then we can get into the alternatives like distressed,
1: macro, long short. Yeah, absolutely. So, that was a big part of the thesis and in really to take a step back, you know, I think when um, you know, When we started talking about it, we were basically just looking at the way that a lot of the institutions that we've been dealing with or working with or working at for, for a couple of decades collectively um, manage money for the long term. They and, and the institutions I'm referring to are kind of endowments and, and pension funds and the like. You know they've been managing money in this way where they are including alternative assets into their asset allocation portfolio, and it's really designed to you know it, it, it serves different purposes and different for different institutions and, and depending on their portfolios. But you know really it's 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 trying to access a return stream that's not um, that's not as simple as you know stocks and bonds, right? That's a little bit of a different um, a different return stream that's getting its you know uh, the driver of returns is different, and so it it creates a diversifier for the portfolio, for the overall portfolio of stocks and bonds, because that's, you know, that's the core portfolio. Um, and it also provides access to sometimes uh, uh, asset classes uh, that are not, that are just not in stocks and bonds, right? And so, um, so our, our point of view was, we, first of all, we have the know-how and the relationships to be able to diligence and understand um, between all of the managers out there who makes sense and who doesn't make sense? Um, we have the relationships to actually access them um, because, you know, I think if you were to, you know, even five, five or six years ago, if you were to kind of pitch what what, what we're pitching, I don't think it would have been um, a, 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 a very easy thing to do. But I think that in this environment um, and and this focus on, you know, retail and 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 the institutions actually pulling back from alternatives over the last, you know. Five or six years, I think it creates an opportunity for us to come in and, and, and offer a different path for some of these for some of these hedge funds, and um, and so we just we just have the the know how and the relationships to be able to diligence these managers and implement the strategies in in client portfolios in a way that I don't think any other group really has uh, that that's doing something similar.
0: Yeah, it definitely, it's hard to invest in a hedge fund. Without you know a lot of money for sure, so that, that's so you're pooling the, the client's money. That that's interesting. And then can you just walk us through the the different alternatives? Because the word, word alternatives it can be very confusing. So there's you know there's long short, which is like long Disney, short Netflix. Then there is distressed debt, which is actually where you came from, right? As where you started, so you're buying like really off the run credit but uh, bonds that are trading at deep discounts. Uh, what else is there in the alternatives world and why is it so important as a diversifier?
1: Yeah, no, there's, there's a, we can, we can spend hours talking about all the different types of alternatives, but to break it down into maybe kind of broad buckets, I would say, you know, the biggest and, 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 and let's just stick to hedge funds for the time being, but there's also obviously venture capital and, and private equity, which, which broadly speaking are part of alternative investing strategies. And so I think in the hedge fund space, the largest category today is equity long short. Uh, To your point, this is where um, uh, a manager might be picking stocks, long and short, positioning the portfolio um, you know uh, to to be long stocks that they think are going to outperform the market and short stocks they think are going to underperform the market and so um so there's that's probably 60 to 70% of the market if i remember correctly based on the on the latest stats um and and what that does is it designs a return again if you're you know both long and short stocks it designs it designs the output of that is a return that's very different than if you were just to own stocks, right? Because um, you know when markets go down, you're not gonna go down as much as the market because you're also short stocks. Hopefully you're picking the right stocks so and when markets go up, you're actually outperforming um, the market. And And so the overall return profile is a, is a higher quality return than just owning stocks. And, and so what I've observed in, in my experience in uh, the equity long short space is, you know, the managers that I think stand out to us are sector focused managers. So these are managers that actually focus on specific sectors. So, you know, TMT, you know, tech media telecom has been, uh, you know, a big sector, obviously very popular over the last, you know, five or six years. Um, that's a that's an interesting sector where if somebody's only focused on those stocks, that smaller universe of stocks, it's more likely that if they're good, they'll over a period of time they'll they'll pr- pr- provide decent performance above whatever the underlying benchmark is. Um, you know, energy focus managers obviously there's not a lot of those, but that's that's an interesting area. Financials is another not a lot of uh, managers in that space, but it's another interesting a- area. Consumer stocks, um, there are some managers that are focused on just consumer stocks and real estate stocks. Actually, that's kind of an interesting area where um, that's relatively new. But I think that that's where uh, there are managers that can actually add value. Away from equity long short, there's, um, you know, to your point, distressed debt I spent, you know, after Goldman, I joined a fund that was run by two ex-Goldman distressed uh, debt prop investors. Um, and, um, and, and that's a really interesting asset class because these are people that operate in the credit markets, really in the, in the markets for highly levered companies. And, um, and they only really get involved when, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, when things break, right? So when a company that has too much leverage uh, starts to uh, have uh, financial stress, uh, the, the credit or the bonds or the, the, the bank debt uh, or the loans of the, of the company start to trade down in the market. Uh, distressed debt investors—they step in at that point, point. Um, and so what happens is that you have this very interesting dynamic. And you know, we touched on it um, uh, offline, but you have this very interesting dynamic, is where you have certain uh, uh, firms that are their, their mandate is to own uh, certain credits. Right? They might have to have a certain rating. They might have to have a certain price. Um, when that that breaks, when you know that price breaks or that rating gets lost, um, they have to sell. Uh, those those assets and that's when the distressed debt investors step in because, you know, they're the ones that are going to help transition the company They're only buying into it because they think there's value, right? So if you're buying a bond at 30 cents on the dollar, you think there's more than 30 cents of the of of, of value in that bond um, But you know, there's, there's two different outcomes for that, right? You can, you know, restructure the company if it's if the debt is trading at 30 cents You're probably going to restructure the company and you're going to receive equity in the new, you know, in the in the new company that comes out of the restructuring. And hopefully, you know, the business model is sound and 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 that equity will will trade higher with the market. Um, the other, the other obviously, the other scenario for, for distressed debt is is liquidation, right? So if the business, you know, if 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 the stakeholders decide that the business is not a going concern, they're going to liquidate the assets and hopefully the value you get for those assets is more than that 30 cents uh, that you paid for that bond. Um so that's kind of distressed debt super interesting um not very correlated to either credit or um equity assets which is why we, you know we think it's interesting um and um Girl, that surprise that surprises me that yeah. that because you know if it's a
0: distressed bond becomes distressed when a high yield bond you know sells off from 80 cents to 59 cents right so when it, as it's falling as it's a falling knife from 80 to 59 uh, high yield is not doing well. So wouldn't that, wouldn't that correlate
1: immediately to distressed? Well, the, you have to remember the distressed investor is not owning at 80. They step in when it comes to, when it comes to 60 and usually they step in when it's at 20 or 30. Right. And so, um, and so, and so, so the high yield funds are no longer owning that asset. So they experience that first leg down, the distressed guys come in later, and and that's why it's not correlated to those to those assets. It's uh it's it's a it's a it's really a strategy that's um that's based on an event. And the event might be restructuring, might be liquidation. Uh it's not so much, you know, at the whims of the market, so to speak.
0: Mm. And what do so? I imagine you know those dis- distress type funds very profitable during times like two thousand eight, uh, pretty profitable in, in twenty twenty. Although the distress did not really last long enough for people to gain a position. But what do distress funds do when there is no distress and you know credit spreads are at two, and everything is hunky dory?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, very uh, near and dear to my heart uh, uh, of a question. <laughs> it is it is somewhat of a cyclical strategy. I think our view is that. You know, if you're a manager that has, you know, Oak Tree is a good example, right? They, they have tens of billions of dollars in each fund vintage. They're an amazing, you know, long term investor um, that's been around for a very long time. But um, when there's not stuff to do, I I, I honestly don't know what, what Oak Tree does when there's not a lot of stuff to do. That's why I think, you know, our view would be to focus on managers that um, try to stay relatively small and focus on things that, um are are sub the oak tree size in in terms of the investable universe and um and if you do that i think that there's a much more sustainable strategy that can you know there's always something there's always something that's breaking and so uh if you're not too big you can actually successfully run that strategy even in periods of time that don't seem to be fruitful for the strategy
0: yeah how do you think about size because on the one hand you want to trend follow, right? You want to invest with someone who has done really well over the past 10 years, but someone who's done really well over the past 10 years would have like a billion dollars under management. And it's a lot harder to trade with a billion under management than 30 million under management. So, you know, are there certain sizes where, oh, you won't do, you know, if it's smaller than 30 million, we won't do it. If it's bigger than 10 billion, we'll never do it or,
1: or no. No, this is, I think, I think that's a great, great um, nuanced and thoughtful question, because I think this is where our experience in the industry comes in. Um, it's understanding, you know, first of all, knowing the managers um, and and having kind of firsthand knowledge. This is not, you know, we're not like, you know, going through rankings on Morningstar or anything like that, right? Like we we know these folks, we've been, you know, we've been in, in the business with them for a long time. Um, so knowing, you know, who are the, you know, not only the quality investors, but who are the quality people? Because at the end of the day, you're investing with people and you want to make sure that they're, you know, super high quality individuals um, and understanding what their strengths and weaknesses are. And um, and and is, is their fund or business set up to take advantage of whatever they're trying to take advantage of? And so there's no, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules. I think for every market and every kind of strategy, it's going to be different, but that's kind of where our, history relationships and experience comes in in helping us make those determinations and helping with that judgment.
0: I want to go back to the long short. So I know that because the spread between two stocks is can be quite small, like long Disney and, and short Netflix, people, they let these players, they lever it up a lot because they're like, oh, it has an R squared of 0.95. But what if, you know, Disney has an earnings announcement or the correlation changes and suddenly they, you know, are on the hook for some serious losses, and then they have to degross their entire book. And so they, they they reduce their positions massively across the board. To what degree when when we see, you know, oh, my God, this stock's up 10% or this sector is ETF is down 4%. To what degree is that is that due to sort of the long short players? Because like, I think they 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 run a pretty big line, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. So I do think that their positioning does have an impact on markets, especially in this environment. You know, so we were just talking, I mentioned we were just talking to this technical strategist and, you know, these surveys are, are widely available now. So this is not like anything that's uh, super surprising, but, you know, hedge funds have been um, kind of in risk off mode, to your point, uh, for a while now. Um, you know, what 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 hasn't happened is actually, you know, retail has actually been buying dip this whole time. Um, but uh, hedge funds have been, you know, degrossing and in and, and risk off mode since kind of the, you know, some since late last year, some earlier this year. And I do think it affects markets. But, um, but I think, you know, to, to answer your question in a different way, I think that my personal view on long short is. There is a structural kind of pre-financial crisis. And this is when I first started in the hedge fund industry, um, sitting inside Prime Brokerage at Goldman, which provided the um, both the leverage and a short availability to long short funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly familiar with how um, structurally how, uh, how everything works. So I think there was a structural advantage to long short funds uh, pre-financial crisis because interest rates were above zero which you know they're going back to now um, and so you got paid you know so let's say you ran you know 60 40 so you ran 60 long 40 short so you had 40 cash you had a gross exposure of 100% net exposure of 20% right so on your 40 cash you were receiving interest minus you know whatever prime brokerage you know takes as their as their cut um, on your short balance one of the things that um, I think people is lost on people is that there used to be a rebate a short rebate so um you know whatever uh you you would get paid um a short rebate on your short so not 40 percent, you would get paid some percentage also minus whatever you know the banks take Um, and um and so combine that with whatever beta you have in your in your portfolio you were structurally creating a, a decent return and if you were to add some alpha right if you were actually you know making alpha on the long and short side you know, you were getting into double-digit uh, kind of net returns for investors uh, while taking less risk, and so it's a, it's a, it was a, I think it was a structural issue that helped a lot of funds, um, and and that's what you know helped you know maybe the the uh, lower quality funds you know not not be as evident than you know than than they would be otherwise. I think what's happened since the financial crisis, because interest rates have been at or near zero since then, is that that interest element and that rebate element went away in fact on the short side you now have to pay to short stocks um and that's made that st- that's that that kind of like uh turned that structural element upside down right and so that's made that's made performance for long short funds um challenging and i think that we're we're you know you know if i were to make a call you know bullish or bearish on the hedge fund industry i think you know we're back to kind of a bullish environment for the hedge fund industry particularly long short because You know, interest rates are going, you know, are going higher, at least for the foreseeable future. And, you know, stock picking is probably going to be more relevant than it has been in the prior decade or so, because you have this turn in, um, you know, I think what we're seeing is, you know, we've seen this massive move to passive investing over the last decade, because that's what's been working. And it's because we've had this liquidity just driving asset prices higher. We've seen a turn, and so I think that that's going to create opportunities for stock picking, and I think that it's going to set it up for long short managers to uh, to actually generate some some decent performance and and outperformance.
0: What do you think about private equity and venture capital? Does Centerfin, Centerfin allocate to them?
1: So, um, n- not currently, and and it's not. I would I wouldn't say never, but it's it's not in the current even pipeline or or kind of uh, roadmap for us. The reason is I think. Um, Again, my personal view on, on private equity is private equity is just levered equity, right? Uh, you know, what, what do most private equity managers do? They, they buy a company. They take it private. They put a bunch of debt on it. Um, and then they, they hope that they get an exit uh, on, on their equity that's you know, higher than what they paid for it. Um, and so I think that, again, that worked really well in the environment that we, we were living in. Not quite sure how it's going to work going forward, but you know I've always been kind of skeptical of the strategy. Uh, it's been very popular with institutions, and I think it's largely because. Performance has been good, but I think it's also largely because there's not not as much mark-to-market as there is in public securities, and so you know you're getting you know you're getting quarterly you know uh, performance numbers. You're not getting you know weekly or or monthly estimates or or anything like that, um, and so I think institutions like not having that mark-to-market, and it's been you know the environment's been very conducive to it. You know venture. That's another one where you know I think there's been a lot of money raised in venture and 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 I think it's you know it's supported um you know a lot more startups than would have been viable in a different uh market regime and so you know I mean I think there'll be books written on this later, but I do think at a at a very high level, all of the capital that was kind of pushed into the system kind of post financial crisis and post covid um created a an incentive structure uh, that caused for bad asset allocation decisions to be made both on on the um, on the investing level from, you know, professional investors, retail investors uh, and at the company level. Right. And so companies, you know, using cheap debt to lever up their, you know, to 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 use that as financing, um, you know, some companies may be able to support it. Some companies may not. Right. And so I think we're going to we're going to see a washout of this. And so. So I think for us, um, you know, we'd rather wait and see how how this all plays out before we we make any big decisions that way.
0: Right. And just for our, for our, our audience, when Kirill said private equity funds don't have as much mark to market, he was, what he's saying is that in a stock or ETF, you can every single second you can see exactly where it's trading. The market is telling you what it is valuing at. At private equity, you only get that quarterly. And because there, there isn't no market, it's it's essentially made up. I mean, I'm not saying that they're like uh you know making the numbers up, but it's it's they 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 uh there are the the public markets have to deal with volatility uh you know that the private
1: markets do not. Let's just put it like that. Cor- correct. Uh, yeah, and 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 institutional investors, they they prefer that, right? Because you know, who likes to see, you know, during COVID crashing 35% in six weeks, you know, nobody likes to see that, that kind of drawdown. Mm.
0: Carol, what would you say are the most common behavioral mistakes that investors make? I guess we can do institutional, but also in particular retail. And, you know, to what degree do you think CenterPoint is playing a role in trying to help people avoid those behaviors?
1: Yeah, great, great question. I think um, in my experience dealing with institutional investors for my whole career, almost twenty years of, of kind of interfacing with institutional investors, I think you know my conclusion has been that you know they are prone to the same uh, behaviors as retail investors, right? So there's uh, they're humans, right? It's not it's not a knock at all. Um, these are human beings that are in these roles of a- allocating capital to uh, either directly into the markets or to managers to manage on on their behalf. And and, and at least to speak to managers and manager selection, manager allocation, asset allocation, what I've experienced with institutional investors has been a lot of of the same kind of biases as retail investors. So there's a lot of performance chasing. uh, There's a lot of groupthink, right? So um, you know, institutional investors like to get together and they talk about, you know, which fund manager they like and who's been, you know, performing well for them and, and who's not. Um, and that tends to kind of drive their behavior. Now, not to say that there's not like super high quality asset allocators out there, there are, um, but I think that some of those biases that are typically uh, t- typically really, you know, associated with retail investors exist with institutional investors as well. And um, And the other thing I'd say is that um, I think right now is is very important to point out that there's recency bias. And so we were talking about before, you know, the Fed put and buying the dip. I, I think that there's um, that's 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 kind of, again, I think that's across the board, um, permeating the institutional and retail investor universe. and and as, as we talked about before, the the hedge funds have gone kind of risk off and, and defensive. Uh, the retail investors have yet to do so. And we have this debate internally whether or not um, the retail investors will be the last to capitulate. Um, And, you know, our CIO, um, I think, has maybe a contrarian view where he thinks, you know, the retail investors actually have a much longer time horizon, which is true, because they're not beholden to, you know, they're only beholden to themselves, they're not beholden to any other stakeholders. Um, And, you know, I think my view is, if you look at history as as a guide, the retail investors eventually capitulate also. And so, um, and that may be, that may be the, you know, you were asking about signs, but, you know, if we if we stop seeing that buy the dip behavior from from retail investors uh, in, in the in the, you know, kind of near to medium term future here, that might be the sign of a, of, a, of a bottom.
0: So what are you doing at Centerfin? Are you buying the dip? I guess the opposite of
1: that is, is shorting the rally. Or are you somewhere in between? We're, 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 we're not buying the dip, um, nor we're, are we shorting the rally. Again, I think we need to balance. You know, we, we have to, you know, take a step back. Uh, every time we have these discussions and think about the time horizon that we're working with. Right. So we're working with 10, 20, 30 year time horizons. Um, and so we have to balance our view of what to do tactically versus that long, you know, that long perspective. And so um, what that's meant is just tactically tweaking the portfolios as these markets have been uh, developing. And, um, and that's an ongoing process. And that's why we think, you know, we had talked about earlier, you know, that, that, um, what Centerfin is not categorically is a robo advisor because we think that you know having some sort of predetermined rules around rebalancing and uh, asset allocation that don't dynamically change what's going on in the market, we think that's not going to lead to good results uh, in this in this environment. And so I think that's something that needs to be actively monitored. And um, and 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 you know we have a very healthy dialogue around that pretty much on a you know hour by <laughs> hour basis hmm.
0: So obviously, I, you know, I think it's very cool that you implement macroeconomic views into your investment portfolio. Uh, but let's just say hypothetically, what about a client who wants to buy the dip and says, Hey, Carol, how come we haven't been buying the dip in my account? I want to buy the account. I mean, are you just going to tell them what you think about the Fed and the recession? Or are you going to say, Okay, okay, fine, we'll buy the dip for you. Like, also, do you do separately managed accounts?
1: So all of our accounts are, are held at a, at a broker-dealer custodian, and, so, uh, and we're the investment manager of them. So that's, that's how it's structured. Um, and I think that you know, our goal would be that, um, that we can help our clients kind of see the point of view. Uh, obviously, like, it's the client's money, and so you know, we're kind of beholden to them to do what they want to do. But I think that, at least in our experience thus far, I think that we've been able to you know, explain to folks um, how we're positioned, why we're doing what we're doing, we put this all, you know, out there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all out there. We have, you know, um, you know, we've published our views publicly. So, you know, people can go back and read and, and, and grade us. And we're, not, we're never going to be 100% right. But I think, you know, the decisions we make are thoughtful um, based on, you know, everything that we're experiencing and observing. And I think that, you know, thus far, anyway, our clients have been very happy to kind of let us help steer.
0: And what's your view on crypto?
1: That's the million dollar question. Uh, so uh, we, we we talked about this a little bit offline, but, you know, behind me is uh, actually a copy of the Bitcoin white paper. So uh, clearly I i am um, a buyer uh, of, of the space and, and a believer in the space. But I think I need to uh, make it clear that I think crypto became, you know, and I think it's all a function of the same thing, which was this very easy monetary environment that provide liquidity into risk assets and speculative assets and crypto is is kind of probably at the top end of that um, of, of that speculative ladder um, but I do think that Bitcoin as a concept makes sense to me and the reason is is that Bitcoin has this very unique property in that it is you know money or value that has no intermediary right so if you have you know, no matter how much money you have, if you have it at the bank, it's at the bank. It's not—it's your—it's not your money. Um, the bank is holding it for you. Uh, Bitcoin is super unique in that you know if you hold it in your private wallet with your private keys uh, in a cold wallet. Nobody, unless they physically take it from you, nobody can 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 take that Bitcoin. Right. And so my view is really informed by I grew up in the Soviet Union. We left there as refugees uh, in the late 80s. We were not allowed to bring anything with us. So, you know, any, you know, we didn't have any wealth, but, you know, we weren't allowed to bring anything out of the country. Right. Um, And so if you if you kind of take a step back. And you think about what's going on in the world right now. You know, is there a need for a sovereign-less money, right? Like a, a money that's not tied to any country or any 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 um, you know any government. Um, I think there is, and and I think that's the use case. And I think that like you know, uh, crypto kind of built on that, and 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 you know, it get gets caught up in these like narratives and boom and bust cycles and and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I think. You know, Bitcoin to me makes sense. And I think Bitcoin will continue to be around. And I think that that Bitcoin belongs in, you know, client portfolios or or some, you know, small exposure to client to, to crypto belongs in client portfolios, but it needs to be sized accordingly because it's super volatile and super early in its in its in its, um, in its life and so and and so that's what we recommend that's what i've been recommending you know even before center to friends and family is you know one to three percent of exposure into the space um you know some people have listened to me some people have not listened to me some people have a lot more exposure um and that you know that felt great until very recently so um so yeah so i think that there's uh there's something in bitcoin i believe in that um i do believe there's some stuff going on in crypto that is also very very interesting and we follow um, and are fairly educated on it, but I think that it's still early, and so we need to see—you uh, know—we need to see how things kind of turn out before we make any decisions as it a, as a, you know as it pertains to clients.
0: So, do you currently invest clients' fund in crypto or no?
1: So yeah, so we have a small allocation. We have, actually have a just a one percent allocation to a uh, well currently an ETF that is highly correlated to crypto. Um, this wasn't available even you know 12 months ago, but there's been a, if you follow, I'm sure you know there's been a bunch of uh, products that have been launched that that kind of give exposure, and that 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 we think is the appropriate exposure today for clients in the space because you have the kind of added benefit of um, you know these are publicly traded companies and uh, and publicly traded you know ETF, so um, so there's there's a little bit of protection. Uh, against, you know, against some of the negative elements of crypto that, you know, I'm sure you hear about all the time. Um, But yes, we do. This
0: ETF owns crypto companies, not crypto itself.
1: Correct. Yeah. So similar to similar to, you know, kind of our our discussion on on commodities and commodity commodity equities, um, you know, there are now crypto equities. There's now enough of them that you can have a diversified basket um, of companies that 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 are highly correlated to what's going on in crypto. And um, and we think that at this stage, that's, that's appropriate in a small way.
0: And that preference, that, that, that choosing the crypto companies over cryptocurrency, digital assets, is that a preference that you're making that's purely from an analytical sense? Or is it a regulatory thing? Like you want to own
1: crypto, but you just can't because of the law. It's not, it's no longer, I think, a regulatory thing. But I do think... Um, I do think it's more complex than, and there's there are certain companies that have made some strides, uh, as I'm sure you're aware of, and in, in, in allowing for RIAs to own crypto directly for clients. And it's not, I don't, you know, it's definitely something on our roadmap. But um, at this stage, we think that that's the, um, it's not an, it's not an, by any means an analytical uh, decision. It's more of a kind of structural decision, I would say.
0: Mm, That makes sense. Do you have, and of course, everything that we say in this podcast is not investment advice. Do you have a single company in crypto that you're just wildly bullish on that you think is super undervalued at this current
1: stage? I I really wouldn't say so. I think a lot of these companies still, um, you know, I I think the space is still early, Um, and and so I think that you know you've seen massive drawdowns as as I'm sure you're you're familiar with, Um, and you know some of these stocks might look cheap um you know at a a very high level but um i do think that there's still going to be disruption to some of their business models i I will say on a personal level not investment advice but i'm a a fan of jack dorsey i think he's a really interesting thinker um and i think i'm following kind of what he's doing uh because i think he's you know kind of stepping off the, the board of twitter um you know and focusing on uh i think it's called the block now instead of square but um I think that you know it's it's worth following what Jack Dorsey's doing because I think he's a very uh, thoughtful um, you know thinker in the space. Interesting, Kirill. My, my final section of questioning for you would
0: be about that basket of alternatives that is called macro hedge funds. So I you know I've interviewed macro hedge fund managers, have a lot of macro analysts on it uh, on here. But when you are allocating to macro hedge funds, how do you sort of think about that risk reward and are you betting that the manager is good? Are you betting that the man- the portfolio manager is an efficient trader? Are you betting that their macroeconomic view is right? Uh, if so, you know does that just play into your macroeconomic bias as a deflationist and inflationist? And and then yeah, how does it sort of uh, the return stream fit within the sort of panoply of assets?
1: Yeah. So currently, we do not have um, a macro manager exposure for clients. We do actively uh, speak to. Uh, very, you know, very smart macro managers on a regular basis, and that kind of helps inform our macro views and how we how we think about asset allocation. But I think global macro uh, is one of these strategies. And you know, to take a step back, I think global macro is one of the earliest hedge fund strategies when the hedge fund industry was still very, very nascent in the nineteen seventies. I think nineteen sixties and seventies. A lot of the managers that kind of emerged um, at that point, and you know, these are like legendary names like. Druckenmiller and Soros and Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon, um, the basis of, of how they invested, um, I think, you know, almost always came down to macro, global macro. And, and, uh, and what that means is why it's hard to define is because that basically gave them free reign to do, you know, whatever they wanted across different asset classes and geographies with the with the one kind of common theme that um, you know, all of these views uh, were implemented from a top-down uh, perspective instead of a bottoms-up perspective. So inst- instead of looking individual at a you know a company, a Coke versus Pepsi example, you know they're really looking high level and they're saying, you know, is the are U.S. stocks you know expensive relative to European stocks or Japanese stocks or are interest rates in the U.S. Uh, rich relative to to yields in, in Japan or 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 the or, or the eurozone. Um, you know, so so they're making, you know, they're they're analyzing things at a very macro level and then they're positioning their funds to take advantage of those views. And so I think, you know, as we as we progress here and as we talk to more and more managers and include, you know, potentially include them in, in the portfolios, it'll it'll be the same exact thing as as with any other manager. It's first of all, do we know the manager? Do do we know them well? Um, you know, how, what, what does their process look like? Because, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting that, that I think you and I touched on offline is, you know, macro is not a really good strategy, kind of post financial crisis, similar to long, short equity. And I think it's because we just had this kind of one way, um, monetary policy globally, right? It was just, you know, an easy monetary policy. And so it's very hard when there's not a lot of changes going on as a macro manager to consistently make money, right? You either, you know, you, your best thing would have been to just buy risk assets and just, you know, hold on and buy the dip every time, like, like we talked about. Um, but the truth is that nobody's paying that manager to, to do that, they can do that themselves. I think, you know, I remember, you know, very distinctly, our, our CIO K2 and I, in March of 2020, when COVID first hit, we were talking and kind of discussing the world and, you know, is the world ending or, uh, or what's gonna happen here? And one of the, you know, things that we we had high conviction on is that, you know, macro as a strategy um, probably will become a, a more, much more viable strategy going forward. Because, again, a regi- like, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but I think we're in a regime shift in, in markets because, you know, monetary policy has shifted from, you know, easy to tight. Um, and, you know, rates are going higher globally, except for, you know, places like Japan where they're, you know, they're trying to hold them down. And I think these are all things that are worth paying attention to because it's going to create opportunities not for us but for those managers. And hopefully, we'll find you know the managers we we will want to work for, work with to capitalize on some of those those big moves. So you
0: you'd be open to working with macro down the line?
1: Correct, absolutely. We think it's a yes. super super interesting viable strategy in this in in the current market environment.
0: Kirill, so you had a view a year ago about inflation, and that's relatively easy to, you know, tweak uh, inflation within the sort of 60-40 portfolio, you just sell all the bonds. Um, but what if you have a little bit more, uh, like, nuanced or, you know, harder to implement thing, like you think that the the strength in the dollar is going to dissipate and that, you know, the, the euro is going to strengthen? How would you implement that macro view?
1: Yeah, so we, we were literally just talking about this this morning, um, the dollar has been, you know, kind of a rocket ship. You know, if you look at the, you know, uh, if you look at the chart, you know, it's it looks like a tech stock from two years ago, um, and that's that has ramifications, right? That has ramifications fundamentally on companies, so U.S. multinational companies that derive. You know, some percentage of their revenue from outside the US, um, that's going to put pressure on, on on that part of their business. Um, it also has ramifications on, you know, the prices of commodities and has ramifications on, you know, other countries globally. And so I think we were discussing, you know, there from a technical perspective. Um, and, and again, this seems to be I'm hearing more and more of this. So it seems like it's it's becoming consensus. But if you look at DXY, it's trading at 108, which looks really high on a, on a short term chart. But if you pull up a longer-term chart, you know uh, it, it made a height of one hundred and twenty back in you know two thousand and two, um, and you know from a technical perspective, there's no reason why it can't go that high. You know that that would that would be potentially you know really interesting if that were to happen, but. You know it seems like the more likely thing is that you know that strength should abate um in the coming months and i think that that's just going to be you know i don't think there's anything to do about that in, in, except for the fact that that's going to be bullish for commodities and and we already have you know a decent amount of exposure there and so i think that would be that's actually we think one of the things that's been you know part of what's been holding you know or or or, or you know the recent weakness in commodities has been due to this dollar you know kind of crazy dollar strength that we've witnessed
0: and then how are you thinking about emerging market countries or really any non-U.S. markets? So Europe, China and all sorts of other countries, stocks.
1: Yeah, no, it's a very active internal discussion. You know, generally speaking, um, you know, we've been bullish on emerging markets, but obviously emerging markets, uh, you know, have this headwind of, of, of the dollar that we've experienced. Emerging markets are also, um, you know, there, there's 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 decent correlation between commodities and emerging markets. So it's kind of the similar kind of similar realm. Um, and, you know, China is the biggest emerging market and it's worth following what's going on in China. And we have been very closely because, you know, we think China um, and this is, again, not I, I don't think it's super insightful, but, you know, China's clearly changed their stance towards the Western world where, you know, I think that, you know, for the last couple of decades, they've been very kind of friendly. Uh, wanting to you know engage and, and be in business with the us and other western countries uh, it seems like they're now moving to be much more focused internally um you know and and really focused on what's good for china um you know and and not really you know not really as friendly to the western world and so um so that's going to determine I think you know how how the situation in China evolves is going to determine our I, I think our views on broadly speaking emerging markets, because it's, you know, the largest of the emerging markets. Um, I think Europe is, you know, potentially, um, that's actually, you know, one exposure we've we've considered, you know, getting out of for clients recently, because, you know, we think Europe's potentially um in a in a tougher place because they're facing the same kind of recessionary pressures that the US is facing, but they have the additional problem in that the ECB has even has been even, um, you know, so they have inflation, they have recessionary fears, but the ACB has yet to really change their kind of stance. Um, And so, there's there's a there's a higher probability of things breaking there and, and you're seeing that a little bit in, in terms of you know the the fragmentation of uh of of you know uh government securities uh yields in, in the various different countries uh-huh. in your in Europe and that's something worth worth following but that's that's one place that maybe if if you you know nothing seems obvious at the moment it's it's a very you know a very tough environment but uh if you if if you know if I had to choose a place that seems um, where we can take some action right now, it would be to just kind of get out of uh, European equities at this point.
0: Interesting. Well, Carol, it's been great having you on Forward Guidance. Where can people find you? Do you have
1: Twitter? I'm on Twitter. I've been trying to get more active there. Uh, my, my handle is WallStreetHobbs. It's uh, W-A-L-L-S-T-H-O-B-B-E-S. And um, uh, obviously, centerfin.co. I'm at at centerfin.co. And um, happy to engage with people. Uh, always happy to chat and, uh, and, and have a dialogue. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Jack.
0: There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.